news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hello, 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 podcast listeners. As you know, at the Shit No One Tells You About Writing, we always say it only takes one yes. Writers work with Robin at Readerly Book Coaching to get that one yes. Robin may be the book coach for you if you're writing historical fiction, historical mysteries, or women's fiction. Maybe you've given your draft to critique partners, you've tried editing yourself, but you know something still isn't working. She will give you detailed professional feedback so you can draft your way or revise your way to yes. Go to readerly.net slash one yes to find out more or enter your name into a draw for a laser coaching session. That's readerly.net slash one yes. She's an author, accelerator, certified book coach, and experienced research reviewer who can't wait to help you with your project. Go to readerly.net slash one yes. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hooks. As per usual, we're going to dive right in. Carly, won't you kick us off? Dear Miss Waters, please accept this submission for my debut novel, The Home Across the River. Told over two timelines from three perspectives, it is complete at 113,000 words. I would position this novel alongside titles such as The Beekeeper of Aleppo by Christy Laferry and Exit West by Mohsin Hamid. 
Set in an alternate reality, where Britain is sliding inexorably towards civil war, we follow the Ashton family as they fight first to survive the conflict, before then taking a treacherous journey across land and water towards a salvation not all will survive to see. Under the suffocating rule of an authoritarian regime, Sarah Ashton is trapped in a loveless marriage. Planning to leave her husband, she counts the days until her children turn 18 so they aren't damaged by the events in the same way she had once been. David, cowardly and oblivious to his wife's unhappiness, tries to survive the hostile world through sheer bravado alone. Meanwhile, their 13-year-old daughter, Sophie, headstrong and confident, is not so easily scared. In the throes of first love, she has had her whole life planned out ahead of her. But with the country teetering on the edge of madness, David makes a terrible mistake that places his family in the crosshairs of the regime's murder squads. Left with no other choice but to run, they are forced to put aside their dreams and differences to save each other from the worst humanity has to offer. This novel was inspired by my time working in the refugee camps of Greece. There, I met the most wonderful people with the most harrowing stories. The conditions in which they were forced to live were devastating, and yet through it all, they were stoic and graceful. Infuriatingly, refugees from certain areas of the world are still talked about in a negative light within our politics and media. I want to challenge these perspectives by placing a British family in Britain itself at the heart of the crisis, forcing us to ask the question, how far would you go to save your family? I am 42 and living between Wales and London after several years of living abroad. My previous work has been as a film producer and humanitarian worker. Thank you for your time, and I look forward to hearing from you at your convenience. All the best, Alex Ashman. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, so what was your take on that? Okay, I I really like the title, The Home Across the River. So it's not like blowing my mind per se, but it's quite good. The one thing I might do is actually increase its sense of place by actually naming the river, like the home across the blank river, you know, just giving us a little bit more of a sense of place, I think would help a little bit. It's a bit vague, but I do like the kind of the cadence of that and the alluding to the sense of place. So 113,000 words. That's pretty long. Most people know I have a lot of feelings about length like that. I know it's three perspectives, two timelines. You know, there's a lot to cover. Debut novels, sometimes there is a bit of overwriting that happens, right? Because it's your first book. You're like getting all your words in the page, that sort of thing. So any way we could get this closer to 100, that would be great. Again, not the end of the world. It's not impossible. It's just kind of long-ish. That's all. Okay, so our comps are the beekeeper of Aleppo and Exit West. And then right away we get into this set in an alternate reality where Britain is sliding inexorably towards civil war. So I kind of felt like this civil war bit came out of nowhere because we don't have like a hook mentioned in that first paragraph. We have our comps and we have like debut novel. We don't have like literary novel or speculative fiction or alternate history or alternate future, that sort of thing. And that opening paragraph, which can help frame it a little bit. So the comps were good, but then I felt like this Britain and Civil War thing was like, whoa, like, how did we get here? I just wanted you to know that that was a little bit jarring for me. You just might maybe want to mention in the first paragraph, you know, something about this alternate universe, alternate reality, you know, alternate future, however you want to word it. It's just something to think about because it did, it did grab me in a kind of, huh, I wasn't, I wasn't expecting that kind of way. Okay. But I really overall really do feel like this is a very strong paragraph. You know, we cover so much. We cover the family life. You know, we carry, we, we also cover the actual journey itself of what happens. We have the regime and, and this kind of like running away and sense of place and home and, and all of that sort of stuff. So I think it's, I think it's very, very strong. I actually don't have any line notes for that. And then 
the paragraph that starts with this novel was inspired. I really, really liked this. You know, anytime we can have, you know, that that sense of where this novel came from, I think is always so, so good with fiction. So this really personal touch with a, with a fiction submission is, is such a plus for me. So I, I really liked that part. Great, Carly. Right. So what was in those opening pages before you give us a breakdown of them? Okay, so we start with our prologue. It is, we give it, we have timestamp, location stamp, Egypt, May 2023. So we get the sense of, you know, basically, basically we're in modern day. So we open with, we are, we're in Egypt. We, we meet a girl. We know that she is 14 years old. She is on the water. It's a very hot day. She's like watching everybody kind of interact, you know, other families. She's alone. We eventually find out that she's supposed to be in her refugee camp and she kind of got away through, through a hole in the fence. And she eventually kind of has to has to make her way back to her refugee camp. And she's kind of just waiting to see if anybody is going to find her. Then we jump to chapter one. We meet David. It says Manchester, February 2022. So we're going back a little bit. And then we are at the Ashton's family home. And uh, we just get a, a couple paragraphs of that having a barbecue in the backyard. Right. So what was your take on it? Did it do everything that opening pages are expected to do? All right. So it's the prologue. It's so funny because <laughs> I feel like everybody knows that I'm kind of the one of the three of us that always hates on prologues. I don't hate it here because there's just so much to establish in terms of, you know, this this running away, you know, the refugee stuff, the the camp. All all of that part I think I think is is really interesting. The one part in this section that I thought was a really interesting choice to mention. So there's a line here we're in we're in this 14-year-old girl's point of view. It says she sighed wishing she had a cigarette, wishing she died along with the rest of them on the journey here. And based on the query letter, we again kind of know what's happening, right? So I thought this was a really really interesting choice to mention this because if the whole family has died, this is the prologue, we're going to go back in time. I'm just not really sure what's going to keep us turning the pages here. Is it the way they died? Like, I don't, I'm just, I've, I felt like that maybe wasn't the right choice personally. I, I wouldn't, I don't think I would spell out the fact that the rest of her family died because I'm assuming this is the 14 year old girl, part of this, the Ashton family that we jumped to, unless I'm completely wrong. But then I'm wondering again, why would we be in this girl's point of view? So that I thought was a really interesting choice. There's, there's a really great kind of, you know, like metaphor happening in these opening pages. So basically the girl, she, she's given a sandwich for lunch. I don't know if it's from the refugee camp, but she's eating it by the water. And she opens it up. It's supposed to be like chicken salad, it says on the wrapper. And then she opens it up and it's full of like maggots and gone bad. She throws it on the ground. And then this like little lizard comes up and is the lizard's going to eat it, right? And so she has this line that says, life always showed you if you were the lizard or the maggot and sometimes sprinkled in the torment of casting you as both in one lifetime. So there was really like subtle use of metaphor. Well, not subtle, I guess, but a good use of strong metaphor. You know, we have the strong sense of place in Egypt. We have a lot of really, really interesting things going on. And I also liked the the last line of the prologue, which was the last couple lines, which was she pulled herself through and jumped and turned around. So she's going back through the fence to the other side. Nobody was there. Once could have been her imagination. Twice was confirmation. Someone had started following her. And then the prologue stops. And then we jump to chapter one, which we're kind of going back to normal life. And the first line there was the raw flesh sizzled against the fire licked grill. And I really liked this because it links up with when she was going back through the fence, she caught herself on the fence and was bleeding. And also like the grisly part of like the lizard kind of 
eating grossly. I don't know. I just thought like that raw flesh line like really linked the the prologue back together really well. One thing that stood out to me is that the family's name is Ashton, the Ashton home, and your last name is Ashman. I I'm wondering if like that was on purpose. Uh, personally, I would change it. I wouldn't have your last name that close to the character's last name. I would change that. And then on this in this first paragraph of chapter one, the last line of the first paragraph is before the spring bloomed, most of the friends would be dead. Because they're talking about the friends at the barbecue. So there is this real sense of like foreboding, you know, real sense of darkness. But I think I would just like to be a little bit more subtle about like who's dying and when and where and how, you know, all this stuff to keep us really turning the pages. But this is really, really strong. And I'll probably I'll probably want to see more. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Yeah, really good writing at, at the line level. You know, when it comes to revising, it's easy to take out snippets of information and to say, okay, maybe I revealed too much. I'm going to take this out and move it to like chapter six or whatever. But when the writing's there on a line level, it really does sing. So thanks for that, Carly. Cece, you're up. Dear Ms. Murray, Ms. Lyra, and Ms. Waters, thank you so much for the opportunity for your feedback and wisdom. I am a devoted listener and have learned so much from listening to each episode. My name is Mark Massaro and I'm currently seeking representation for my coming-of-age novel titled Four Letters, a Novel, which is complete at 100,700 words. The story focuses on a 30-year-old man named Dan Kavanaugh who barely survived a high school shooting 12 years earlier. This event was the catalyst that caused him to abandon his academic literary scholarship at Columbia to become a reclusive addict suffering from PTSD on his ex-criminal uncle's commercial fishing boat. After Dan's father, a celebrated romantics professor, dies from a sudden stroke, he returns to his hometown to reunite with his grieving family, comprised of his newly widowed mother Mary, Matt, his narcissistic attorney brother, and Kara, his pregnant award-winning journalist sister. After the memorial, Dan is prevented from escaping back to the boat once he learns that his father left him four letters to personally deliver to four individuals that he has never met, individuals significant to his father's personal journey. Armed with his father's Jeep Cherokee and the letters, he travels around New England and finds himself healing from his past traumas as he confronts the choices he's made while discovering his father's legacy. This novel has the complex family dynamics played in We Are the Brennans by Tracy Lange, The Love of New England's Working Class Coastal Communities featuring in Suzanne Conley's Landslide, as well as exploring the quiet moments of human connection displayed in Linklater's Before film series. This novel displays the themes of redemption, generational improvement, effects of trauma, substance abuse, and the healing power of family and friendship. Within the dichotomic clashing of past and present and innocence and experience, this story is about hitting rock bottom and then finding the way back. Four Letters a Novel is my first novel-length work. I am a professor of English at Florida Southwestern State College. My short stories, essays, and book reviews have been published in Dash, Litro Magazine, Rain Taxi Review, The Georgia Review, Los Angeles Review of Books, The Sunlight Press, and others. I am the co-advisor of my university's Creative Writing Club, the co-editor of our literary journal, 
and a consumer of all things literary. I was born and raised in Massachusetts, and my love, respect, and wistfulness for the unique culture is evident in this work. Most importantly, I am a husband and new father struggling to teach virtually through this pandemic while chasing our toddler around our home, much to the amusement of our senior golden retriever. Thank you for your time. Please let me know if you have any questions. Sincerely, Mark Massaro. Awesome, Cece. Thank you for that. I'm interested to know what you think about him putting the comp titles so so late in the query letter. So that's going to be interesting to hear. What did you think about it? So this is a strong query letter. I do have notes. In terms of the comp titles coming in later, I usually prefer them at the top. It didn't bother me because I did have a sense of what the story was about quite early on. And the fact that it's a coming-of-age novel does inform a lot. Things that could be edited, minor things such as you don't need to write four letters a novel, like you can cut the a novel part. We already know it's a novel based on your description. You also don't have to put the exact word count, you can totally round that to 100,000. I also think there's a little bit of unnecessary detail in the plot paragraph. Do we have to know his father is a celebrated romantics professor right in the query letter? Do we have to know like that his newly widowed mother Mary, like we already know that his mom is newly widowed, his father just died. Matt, his narcissistic attorney brother, Kara, pregnant award-winning journalist. These are really important details to build character for the novel. I just don't think they belong in the query letter. The major dramatic question, he travels around New England and finds himself healing from his past traumas as he confronts the choices he's made while discovering his father's legacy. It sounds super introspective. It sounds beautiful, but not as plot-oriented as I would like. So if there's any way to flesh out the plot, I would. Maybe bring out the tension. All we know right now is that it's four letters and the individuals are significant, but we don't know if it ties to his own identity or a question he's always had from his childhood. As well, I'm talking about paragraph three now. It starts with this novel has the complex family dynamics. I don't think you need the second sentence. I totally understand why you would include your themes, because themes are really important to why someone writes a book. It's also really interesting to hear as a reader. As a reader, when you're enjoying a novel and you listen to the author give an interview, you're super compelled by the themes of a novel and why the author wrote that. But the query letter stage, like this is not where themes belong. We are going to request pages, we agents, because the story is compelling. Themes will come in handy later in your call with your agent and your call with your editor. I also loved the reference to the senior golden retriever. So thank you for that. Thanks so much, Cece. As someone whose golden retriever just turned 11, I have got to agree with that sentiment. Right. So now we're going to go to what's in those opening pages. Will you give us a rundown of those? So we meet our protagonist, Dan Cavanaugh. The first line tells us about him. Dan Kavanaugh never had to adapt to the swinging of the boat because he had grown up on her. We learn about the boat itself, size, shape, capability. We learn about Dan's first memories on the boat. We learn that Dan had been a commercial fisherman for 12 years, a career that he fell into after forsaking his intended path of higher academia. We learn about Bucket, the boat's resident cat, the town we're in, Susan Hastings, Dan's fling, who lives in the town. We learn how Uncle Pete told the family he acquired the ship and how he acquired his love of scotch. We learn that for a while in the 80s, the boat was used to smuggle cocaine. Once that got too risky, though, they stopped. 
At the very end of the excerpt, we get a scene between Dan and Uncle Pete, where Uncle Pete offers to deposit Dan's money in the bank, but Dan says no. We don't know why he says no. And then Uncle Pete asks Dan if he's staying in, and Dan answers yes. So the scene ends with a really beautiful line with Dan in tears, missing the life he could have had. That's the plot. Right. It sounds interesting. It sounds like quite a bit of exposition. Did it work? That is exactly what happened. It was quite a bit of exposition. So I am recommending a total overhaul here. I feel strongly that you should pick a different starting point. Right now, the first pages are catching up the reader on how Dan got to live in the boat, offering context on all the things that I covered in the in the summary, right? Like the boat's history, the surroundings, the family. I want to be clear. These details are great. Details are what make a story come alive. They are also hard work as they involve a lot of research. And I know how writers often spend days of research only to use one little sentence of that research in the novel itself. But in my opinion, they don't belong in the beginning. You should weave them in later, in scene. Speaking of scene, that's what I'd recommend you start with. A scene in which Dan has a goal, in which there's a power imbalance, an obstacle, tension, and then a shift. I am reminded of the Writing the Perfect First Five Pages webinar that Carly and I taught and how we kept talking about the importance of having a fulsome scene with your protagonist moving and talking and how including certain elements helped contribute to story-forward curiosity. And that's what's at the heart of my notes here. As it stands, I'm not curious about what happens next because it feels like I read a recap, an intro to a book as opposed to a story. To use an analogy, it's like the writer laid out most of the ingredients for quiche as opposed to serving a quiche. In a story, you have to bake in a whole bunch of ingredients together to form one seemingly organic thing. And we need to be curious about what happens next. Now, I am mindful that the writer did include a a sliver of a scene at the end, but it didn't have the elements I'm referring to. It didn't have the power imbalance, the obstacle, etc. The effect is that when I did read that one line of emotionality at the end, which was so well written, by the way, like kudos for the great writing, I didn't feel connected to the character. I didn't feel that like that emotionality arrived after the necessary compelling scene. Storytelling is very subjective. So while I do hope that you'll take my criticism in the spirit in which it is intended, like it's constructive, I hope it's encouraging. Like, remember, this is your call. This is your novel. You decide what to do with it. I do think it needs an overhaul for the beginning. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. And just a reminder to our listeners, those of you who are our monthly supporters on Kofi, you will have access to Carly and Cece's notes on all four queries today. And for those of you who are once-off supporters, you will have access to two of the query letters today. Right, Carly, let's go across to you again. Will you read us your next query letter? Dear Carly, trigger warning. Please note that this material contains references to the shooting deaths of people of color by police in references to past self-harm. Based on your manuscript wishlist that mentions the desire for strong literary voices, I hope you might be interested in my manuscript, Lesser Known Catastrophes, an 88,000-word work of metafiction that explores the intersectionality of racial and psychological prejudices using themes from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. When 25-year-old Lorna, an actress struggling to hide her severe depression, befriends Will, a black man, just weeks before he's murdered by the police, she must determine how she can use both her disease and creative passion to find justice, or risk abandoning her career and worse, to be complacent with his death. Dragging herself through to the opening of the play Twelfth Night, Lorna falls flat, literally, because a key sound cue is missing. The star of the show splats on stage. 
She soon discovers the cause. A board operator, seriously depressed after his recent breakup, is absent after swallowing a bottle of pills. But it's not long before Lorna realizes she's found a rare kindred spirit in Will. He also challenges her white privilege in ignoring any news that stresses her out. Lorna is just beginning to understand her entitlement, complicated by a love triangle with Rhea, Will's ex, when he is killed. At her nadir, Lorna admits herself to the same psych ward previously visited by Will. There, she must confront her depression, biases, and disillusionment with theater. Faced with the prospect of abandoning her career, losing Rhea, and reneging on the last promise made to Will, Lorna must either use her own brand of creative extremism to make change or be left with only one friend, a job inflating balloons in a leafless tree. The writing contains script-like insertions, beats, silences, notations of setting, to highlight parallels with Twelfth Night. This debut manuscript steals themes from my previous work on stage and at a balloon store. Now I live in Columbus, Ohio with my husband and three kids and work for a bank. Many thanks for your time and consideration. Gwen Gualatieri. Thanks, Carly. Ooh, this sounds very experimental, which... To take Cece's words, I think is high risk, high reward. So did that experimental structure work for you? Let's hear your verdict. Okay, yes. So it feels unnatural to me when things are very experimental. But yes, okay, let me start at the top here. So one of the things I think we're missing is a modern comp. So we have our 12th night. Okay. Great, got that. But we're missing another one. And I think that's definitely standing out to me because whenever I'm thinking about how something is going to insert itself or be relevant in a current market, I'm thinking, okay, well, that's what this current market looks like, right? And Twelfth Night is obviously, as we all know, not modern in that sense. I really, really like the title, Lesser Known Catastrophes. I really, really like that. What I'm not loving is how we're kind of spelling it all out. I think with experimental fiction, because it's experimental, I think there's this huge urge to want to over-explain yourself. But we really just need the material, the plot, everything to stand for itself. Because just saying, you know, a retelling of Twelfth Night is enough. You know, that really is enough. You know, and I reworded it, which you'll see in, in my notes when I when you get them, which, you know, I just, I reworded it to say, I hope you might be interested in my manuscript, a retelling of Twelfth Night entitled Lesser Known Catastrophes, right? And then we just strike through the kind of over-explanation that follows in, in some of the next couple lines. So, so that part I would probably rework. And the next thing I think I'm struggling with a little bit is kind of the entire framing of this all. Because the kind of order that this is pitched is, okay, we have our 25-year-old actress, her severe depression, she befriends Will, a black man, just weeks before he's murdered by the police. And then there's a whole like second half to this with sentence, which says she must determine how she can use both her disease and creative passion to find justice or risk abandoning her career and worse, be complacent with his death. So... I'm just, I'm really struggling to find, like, to know how much of this book happens, like, before his death, after his death. Is his death the inciting incident? Is it the climax? Like, I feel so unsure about where this book is going. And the point of the query letter is to kind of tell us, like, this is what you're going to get, right? And obviously not spell out all the details or anything like that. Unless this is kind of like more of a frame narrative. I don't know. I think I'm just struggling to really to, to figure out what the order of events truly is and less being told what, 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 I'm, what I'm going to interpret from these events. It just felt a little backwards to me. And I think I would really just love to know how we're kind of how we're kind of coming at everything in a chronological way. And if it's not chronological and that's part of the experiment, experimental part of the book, then kind of let me know that as well. I just feel like we're overtelling in this query in the wrong parts. So 
Okay. And and then the bit about the love triangle. How interesting is that, right? So we have our complicated by love triangle with Rhea, Will's ex. So interesting, right? And I feel like that's so buried in here. And that's why I'm kind of struggling again with like what exactly is happening in this book. And are we really focusing on the parts that I think are the most kind of interesting and, and kind of critical to the actual plot itself? And then the mention of his death is so just like quick to me, you know, Lauren is just beginning to understand her entitlement complicated by the love triangle when he's killed. And then it's just, I don't know, it it just made me feel like so it's so it was so passive, like, I think we're meant to understand that he was he was killed potentially by police, because that's what it was mentioned in the in the content warning, the trigger warning. Yeah, I don't know. I just felt like I didn't know what was happening or how I was meant to feel about that. And so, yeah, that just felt so passive. Like, how did he die? Where? When? Why? Like, I just had so many questions. And yeah, it just kind of left me feeling really, really unsettled. And then we have our kind of, you know, how how close do we want to follow Twelfth Night? How how script-like do we want to be in this manuscript? To be honest, I would really just love for the book to do the heavy lifting. Like, let the characters do the heavy lifting. Let the prose and the dialogue do the heavy lifting. I find the kind of a lot of the script like tendencies to be quite distracting from a fiction point of view but that's of course just my personal taste of course wonderful Carly thank you something this makes me think of is Stacy Swan's Olympus Texas which you know my education was clearly deficient in terms of we were never taught the Greek classics not in high school not at university and it was getting halfway through this book and realizing it that it's a whole retelling of all these Greek classics but you didn't have to know that to thoroughly thoroughly enjoy the story so it would be interesting to see what uh, that query letter would have would have looked like and how much it would have depended on on telling the agent or the editor that okay so tell us what's in those opening pages okay so we start with some stage direction we have the title lesser known catastrophes but then there's also another title introduced which i was confused because i thought the title was lesser known catastrophes it says or what about will a modern telling of 12th night and then we have again some stage direction pittsburgh pennsylvania october 2018 a stage backstage an apartment okay so we're on stage with her as she is acting out this play and then we find out she fell flat on her face which we know from the query letter And then she's kind of on the ground. She's trying to figure out what to do. She's thinking. It's very hard to improv Shakespeare. Like when somebody bungs it up, it's like you can't, it's just hard to get it back into that rhythm, right? Or, or, you know, kind of fill in for somebody else on stage. So they're kind of just staring at each other and the audience is also kind of staring at them. And then she, you know, they kind of figure it out how to get back into, to get back into the rhythm of their, of their actual play. And, and then she's again, kind of up there. And then she's thinking, oh, why did I, why did I fall? And then she's thinking, sound, why is there no sound? And then she remembered, she said, you know, she she rushed her entrance. And so we're kind of backtracking about like how she knows that she fell. And and yeah, they're they go off stage after that, after their scene for somebody else to come on. And that's where that's where it ends. I'm gonna stop there. This person did send more than five pages. So um so that's where I'm gonna stop. Great, Carly. All right. So what was your take on them? All right. I I it, this just solidified for me how much I really did want the the words to stand alone. There were some instances where there's some like brackets, silence, brackets, beat, which this person mentioned in the query letter. So kind of it was expected, but it was still very, still very jarring. I don't know. It, it took me out of the moment a little bit. And, and there were some instances where I felt like the writing was trying to mimic some Shakespearean qualities. There's a line that says, you know, such drama. And then the next line is drama as such. Again, a very like Shakespearean thing to do. So 
So yeah, I I think ultimately what, and I think this just speaks to my taste in terms of what I like about retellings, is that we we bring them into 2022, right? Like that's what I'm that's what I'm hoping for. And then any of sort of allusions or themes or anything like that really come through in the modern context of them. So anytime we lean too heavily as like a wink wink nod nod to Shakespeare, I just felt like that was that was just too too much for me personally. So I think at the end of the day, this is just a classic case of this is not the project for me and. This is probably going to be for somebody else. And that's great. And that's wonderful. And and hats off to them. But yeah, in terms of retellings, I think it, it just wasn't for me. I think that was my point earlier on the high risk, high reward. Because when you do something super experimental like this in terms of structure and you have the writing mimicking sort of stage direction in terms of prose, etc., you know, it's either really going to strike a chord with someone who absolutely loves it. Or it's, you know, it's it's going to be for somebody where they just go, okay, that's that's not really, really for me. And we've said a million times on the show how subjective this all is. And we've had agents disagreeing all the time as well. So again, you know, incredibly subjective. Thanks for that, Carly. Right, Cece, let's hear the last query letter. Dear Cece, Lady Death is a YA speculative fiction urban fantasy complete at 72,000 words brimming with dark humor with dual timelines, featuring Daphne's present adventure with Liv and her past, starting from the day she died. It would be perfect for fans of The Invisible Life of Ari LaRue by V.E. Schwab due to its dark themes and merging timeline style, and Afterlove by Tanya Brin because of the sapphic Grim Reaper romance. 23-year-old Daphne L'Amour froze to death on December 24, 2005. Harper, her Grim Reaper, convinced Daphne to work at Grim HQ, rather than move on to the great beyond. Unfortunately, Daphne is the most inept Grim Reaper the office has seen in millennia. She's notorious for allowing her clients to read their unfinished books, linger at their own funerals, and haunt their quaint hometowns. HQ is too understaffed and Daphne is too dead to get fired, so they assign a no-nonsense but outgoing Grimm named Liv to be her supervisor. One morning, the pair receive the name of the daily soul they're meant to rape, Daphne Lamour. Daphne and Liv investigate this obvious grave mistake by interrogating the office. Turns out, they make a scary good team. Among the sea of colorfully cloaked reapers and strange, though occasionally hilarious, deaths, they learn that Harper was never supposed to take Daphne's soul in the first place. Rumors and doubts circle through the office that Harper was a reaper gone rogue, a killer, a soul stealer, and that death themselves was in on his plan all along. If they can prove this, Daphne may have a second chance at life, literally. Then again, some things are worth staying dead for, and Liv just might be one of them. I am a scriptwriter at Rooster Teeth. My work reaches an audience of roughly 5 million listeners per month, and my play, But I Was There, has been performed in New York City, namely at the Nairo Rican Poetry Cafe. Daphne and Liv are both bisexual, and I am a part of the LGBTQ plus community myself. Thank you very much for your consideration. Ali Zagami. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. All right. What was your take on that? I really liked this query letter. It's 
brief, it's funny, it's the plot is great, like it's absolutely great. The comps are amazing, the hook is right at the top. I know exactly what I'm what I'm gonna get, and not to get ahead of myself, but the pages do deliver. So it's it's really, really an excellent hook. I love, love, love the plot paragraph. If I were to be super picky, I'd love to see something she could lose to. Like right now, it's all focused on what Daphne could win. Daphne may have a second chance of life if she can prove that, you know, Harper and Death teamed up to do whatever is it that they did to take her soul before it's time. Or she could, you know, decide to stay because she loves Liv. And that's great. But what what can she lose? Like, for example, if she can't get enough evidence on Harper before X time, could she end up on the wrong side of the great beyond? Like something like that. I I do think it's important to have stakes that can go in both directions, not just what you can win, but what you could lose too. And I know that she's already lost. I want to be mindful of that. I appreciate that. But that is a part of the setup. And in a story, you need escalating story forward stakes, not just the stakes that are baked in when you start the story itself. But I really, really like this query letter. It's so excellent. Perfect, a perfect example of how to write a query letter. Wow. High praise indeed. Author, I hope you're doing a happy dance wherever you are. Right. Okay, Cece, what's in those opening pages? So the story begins with our protagonist, Daphne, watching an old man, Mr. Bennett, read. She assumes he's so engrossed in his book that he hasn't seen her. But soon we realize that he has seen her and that he knows exactly who and what she is. Mr. Bennett shares that he has seen Daphne before around the old folks' home where they are, always next to friends of his who would then end up dying. He also shares that he is ready to go himself. He's over 100 years old and at peace. So Daphne does her thing and then he dies and we see Daphne taking her time after he passed because she thinks it's wrong to leave his body alone. So as she's waiting, she thinks of, about her own boss, Calum, how he's on her case to be faster, to up her numbers. She has the worst numbers in the whole headquarters. And in fact, the boss has mentioned that there could be consequences if her job performance doesn't improve. But Daphne doesn't seem to take Elam's claims too seriously. She believes she's keeping her numbers good enough that he can't actually do anything about it. Another woman walks in, an elderly woman, and she sees Daphne because she's also really close to death. Only people who are close to death can see Daphne. The woman gets worked up in Daphne's presence, calling her a murderer, calling her death itself, and Daphne tries to calm her down, but it's no use. So then members of the staff walk in, but they can't see Daphne. Daphne walks through a door that she can summon using a skeleton key, like a portal of sorts. And she's hoping to herself, you know, I hope Caleb isn't too upset. Wonderful. All right. What was your take on that? So I really enjoy these pages. The writing was super crisp, super polished. All the elements of scene were there. The author clearly put a lot of work into this because this is so easy to read and I've said this before, and I, I will say it again, easy to read does not mean easy to write. I do have big picture notes that I think could make this even better, but please know it's already so good. So one, I would love to see more interiority from Daphne. Like I would love to see that being fleshed out. I'd love to see revealing details throughout these five pages. So for example, when Daphne allows Mr. Bennett time to read, is she longing to be able to read herself? Maybe that's something she used to do when she was alive and now she can't because she's dead. Another example, um, when she sees pictures of his family, does she think of her own? Does any member of the staff remind her of someone she left behind, someone she has unfinished business with? And sure, I get that she can't know what the great beyond is. That's part of the mystery. 
But surely she has theories about it, and I bet she has heard gossip and rumors about it too. Does she long to go there herself? Is her job one with an expiration date? Like all in all, I wanted her inner life to be more active and deep. Right now, most of the inner life is serving the world building, and that's excellent. You should keep it. But I also want small details woven in. To the writer, I did take the liberty of adding line notes with questions throughout the pages that I think might help you do just that, assuming my note resonates with you. And then my second note, I really wanted Daphne to be under like a little bit more pressure. Right now, the situation in which she's thinking about Caleb and the consequences that, you know, he has told her will befall on her if her job performance continues to be lacking. That's not landing in an impactful way. And why is that? It's because she's convinced she's safe. She's convinced her numbers are good enough to keep the consequences away. The effect is that Daphne is coming across as comfortable, and in my opinion, we should not have our characters comfortable. I understand that her state of mind might be really important for the novel's starting point. Maybe she has to be sure of herself, she has to be comfortable, and pretty soon a disruption is going to come, like maybe on page six. And if so, that's fine. And I do want to point out that you can still add a little bit more pressure through a quick fix. For example, she could have spent the pages assuming that time wasn't moving as fast as it was, maybe because, I don't know, Mr. Bennett's clock was broken or something. And then when she does realize her tardiness, she gets that spike of anxiety about Calum. That spike would be enough, as opposed to her just thinking about it casually as, as, as context being woven in. Now, of course, you could add even more tension by having a disruption right away. So for example, instead of having Daphne take the skeleton key, open the, clo- the, the portal, I was going to say closet. Why did I say closet? But (laughs) open the portal and leave. You could have the opposite happen. You could have someone walk in through the portal and catch her waiting after Mr. Bennett passed. You're not allowed to wait after someone has already died. Now, will this person tell Caleb? Will that spell trouble for her? Like all these things would make her less comfortable and it would mean more pressure on the protagonist, which is really, really important. Now, I want to just reiterate that it's great. This is great, 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 great. I'm just adding... A little bit of salt to this. Just my notes are minor, minor things that can be a really quick fix. Great, Cece. Thank you. All right, that's it for today's Books with Hooks. Let's go to today's guest. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You have Carly here to tell you about our upcoming The Shit No One Tells You About Writing virtual retreat. It is on September 24th and 25th, and we are so excited to bring this back to you guys again. We did it in January. We had an absolute blast and got such amazing feedback that we were so excited to be able to put together another amazing weekend. We have 18 hours of jam-packed content. We have 13 speakers. It's such an amazing, inspiring, and just community-building event um, filled with so many learning opportunities opportunities from authors, editors, and various speakers around the industry. We can't wait to see you guys there. Check out more on our website and we will see you soon. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things though about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. 
we're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. You can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they have been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Today's guest is Melissa Fu. Melissa Fu grew up in northern New Mexico and has lived in Texas, Colorado, New York, Ohio, and Washington. She now lives near Cambridge with her husband and children. With academic backgrounds in physics and English, she has worked in education as a teacher, curriculum developer, and consultant. She was the 2018-2019 David T.K. Wong Fellow at the University of East Anglia. Peach Blossom Spring is her first novel. Please join me in welcoming Melissa Fu. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Cece. I've been looking forward to this ever since I got the uh, invitation. You mentioned to me in the pre-show talk that you listen to the podcast. Is that right? I do. I do. I always find it so exciting when authors listen to our podcast. I never expect it, and I always get really happy. Yeah, do you know, I find that 
I constantly learn a lot from it, even though it's sort of pitched on the level of if you want to get an agent and then if you want to get a deal and, and, and that the sort of books with hooks section. But I listen to that and I find like I learn so much about just how, yeah, everything <laughs> writing is it's completely, completely relevant to all writers. Maybe that's one of the things they don't tell you about writing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that one of the beautiful things about being in this industry is that you can always learn. And I, I just I just get super thrilled. So thank you so much for saying that. We are here to talk about Peach Blossom Spring, your fabulous novel. We're here to talk about your writing process in obviously crafting this beautiful piece of art and also about anything else that you might be working on. So Take us back to the genesis of the story, the genesis of your author life, and tell us about the Melissa who first realized that she was going to write a novel. Was it always a novel? And did you always want to be an author? We'd love to know about that. Yeah, so the genesis of this, the story of that kind of changes a little bit the more I tell it, it's sort of shifting. But if I take that question, if I always wanted to be an author and did I know I was going to, I'd say that I always liked writing and I loved reading. I never quite believed that I would be an author or could be one for quite a long time. I I spent a lot of time doing other things. I got a degree in physics. I taught physics. I got a degree in English. I taught English. And then I finally realized what I need to do is write. But I think all of that, all of that life experience really pours into the writing. And, you know, in between there, there was like being the bagel girl and working in a nursery and working in uh, alternative schools. So I think all of those things kind of, as a writer, I can now look at them and say, ah, those are all pointing me to learning how to live and then learning how to write. So this story, I would say I started maybe taking writing a little more seriously say 10 years ago now after various teaching and other jobs and I just wrote every day wrote different things not this story yet but little steps trying to submit to literary magazines poems short flash fiction and just kind of building up the muscle for rejection and also craft and I noticed that in a lot of the stories there were little details about my my father popping up And these were also stories that seemed to get the most interest from others in writing groups, like would ignite the most debate or have the most comments. And they were the ones they felt a little bit different writing. So there was one particular short story that I wanted to write about my dad trying to grow fruit trees. And I took a long time to to draft it. When I finally got it drafted and shared it with friends, they were like, "Eh, it's okay. It's, It's a good story, but we think there's something more. And I was a little frustrated because I thought it was a great story and what more did it need? But what I realized is they didn't understand quite the significance of, of him. And this was sort of a nonfiction short story, but I realized that to make him a full character, I need to move to fiction and look at who he was and what his life was like. And then it just sort of, maybe this is big. Maybe I'll let this be as big as it needs to be. And I thought, let's go for it. Maybe it's a novel. That is so exciting. I love that that piece of advice because, I mean, I don't even know if you, you thought about it as advice, but I feel like it is. You know, for anyone who's thinking about starting to write, it can feel really daunting since there's no set roadmap. Like if you want to, I guess, I don't know, teach physics, you know exactly what you need to do. Not that it's easy, but you know what the steps are. If you want to be a lawyer, you know what the steps are. You know what the qualifications are. But if you want to be a writer, it's like, okay, so how do I start? And I feel like 
writing every day and just allowing those writing juices to flow and to flex your writer's brain is an actually really great way to just get started and also to get back into it because some people do take breaks. I want to touch on the fact that you at first were writing nonfiction and then you decided to move to fiction in order to make him a full character. When you said that, that really resonated with me. What was that process like? How did you take someone from being a nonfiction character, like obviously your dad, obviously someone you know really well as a daughter, into fiction? What did you have to add? What were the challenges? What were some of the really fun things about that? Could you tell us a little bit about that? The movement from nonfiction to fiction. That was fun. And that was really freeing. I think one thing about my dad is that he never wanted to tell us very much about his life and his youth. He was just he was just my dad. And for years and years, he was just my annoying dad, (laughs) you know, and then he was just my quirky dad. And I just kind of I didn't exactly write him off, but just that he's just like that. And then this story got under my skin. and And when I wanted to make him into a full character, I realized not only did I not have too much of his story, but I didn't want to ask him for it. It seems like such an obvious thing. You know, if you want to know about your family, talk to your family members. But actually for him, I could see at this point, and, and you know, when I started working on this, this was maybe four years ago. So 2018, yeah, four, four and a half years ago. And I was a little bit older and could appreciate why he wanted to be a more private person and why he wanted to leave his past in the past. So in a way, I was kind of forced into fiction because I remember thinking to myself, right, if it's nonfiction and someone's going to fact check it for me, that would be great because I don't have any facts. <laughs> they could give me the facts. So or is it fiction? Well, this is based sort of on what I know of a story. So making that decision to move into fiction freed me to say what I wanted was a plausible fiction. So the things that happened in the book, I could say with confidence, they happened. All those things happened to people. Maybe not that particular family in that particular order, but those are all stories and events that I researched, that I read, other people's accounts, other oral histories, and put them together into a a single story. And I think that freedom of going into fiction let me explore ideas I wanted instead of having to feel like, well, I need to stay to what I know the family story is or what I know my dad would have done. It gave me a distance from him and at the same time, a, an ability to get emotionally close to the to the characters because somehow I, I no longer had an allegiance to real people whose feelings I didn't want to hurt. To me, that sentence summarizes all the memoirs that I talk to on a consultation level, just people who reach out to me on social media and they say, you know, I'm working on this memoir, I'm struggling because I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Like I totally get it. And my line is always, you have to decide if you're a storyteller or not, because that's sort of like being a doctor and being afraid to see blood. Not to sound you know, dismissive of the fear, because of course I get it. But at the same time, you can't tell an interesting story without going there. You just can't. That's just not possible. And one of the, the solutions, if you could even call it that, that I have this advice has been given to two different people, completely different authors who, you know, again, will connect with on social media. And when it comes to the first one, I know it worked because she's completed her novel and it's great. And when it comes to the second one, she just started working on, on fiction. But the advice is write a novel. Just <laughs> you're getting in your head. It's like you don't really, you're not really comfortable going there. You know, you have to, you have the writing chops. 
So all that's standing between you and a great story is the fact that you are being too loyal and too nice. And you just can't be too loyal and too nice as a storyteller, right? So write fiction. And I think that's what you did. So now I feel really validated in the advice I'm giving people. I'm totally making your story about me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, But, you know, just to kind of echo that, I found that the later parts of the story, which are less fictional, were harder to write because um, Mm. I knew I knew the people more who kind of they're doppelgangers. And it was really getting close to the present. Yeah, exactly. And it was that. And I had to think to myself, right. So, for example, while it's not you know, while it's loosely based on my family for, I have two brothers and they are not in the story because I just couldn't deal with any more characters. So I just left them out. (laughs) So I thought, well, they can write their own book. And that's kind of the the refrain I would use. I think, think, well, what would my mom say about X? Like, ah, she can write her own book. I love it. Fiction is the lie that tells the truth. I feel like that is the biggest takeaway. So you mentioned oral histories and other accounts. Did you do a lot of research to find out like this is a historical novel like how did you do their historical research because it's I'm assuming it's a lot of work yeah there were I did start to find a few memoirs and a collection of oral histories and these were generally ones that focused on the China and Taiwan section sort of the first third of the book a lot of the academic scholarship on that period of China's history so from you know 1938 up through I'll say the 1950s, early 60s. And, and and when I say China's history there, I'm sort of going in the direction of those who went to Taiwan. So less about the People's Republic of China. A lot of the scholarship on those people really wasn't starting to come out that I'm aware of in English language scholarship anyway, until 2010, 2000s. So it's relatively recent that we've been able to find these stories. and. I found two brilliant memoirs. Well, one is an, an older autobiography that came out in the 1960s. So that's a little bit different. But another one was a memoir that was put in English in 2019 about a woman who very much followed a similar path as my characters from China to Taiwan. And then I found a collection of oral histories of I think about 25 women who went from various places in China and ended up in the city of Chongqing, which is what my characters do. So that was incredibly useful just to get the people's stories the small anecdotes telling about Japanese attacks or about difficult situations where they would maybe find some shelter but it wasn't that safe or and these are not things you find in you know military history books you really need to find people's sort of social history and that was fascinating I had to cut out a lot of things which is fine you know I think editing is all a part of the process probably put in more knowing that things would get cut and it was like, sort of like offering a menu to my editors almost <laughs> you know do you want these stories abc and oh well we like this one most so no so i love that because you're giving us so many actionable tips so if someone is writing a historical fiction novel a really great way to to get into that time period to be able to write with authenticity about something that happened you know likely before you were born is to search for memoirs and you know collections of of oral histories that were that were published and written by people who who did live it so that's that's yeah kind of obvious but at the same time I'll confess to have never thought about that I seriously never thought about this so 
excellent advice. I love this. I feel like our historical fiction listeners will, will really resonate with this. And okay, you mentioned editing and how inefficient that process was. And I'm a big believer that good storytelling has to be inefficient. You can't want to get it right the first time. If you do, it paralyzes you or keep you from going there. So I'm a big believer in like, you have to edit, you have to write. It's almost like five other books before you land (laughs) the book that gets published. If you're concerned for your time, I am so sorry because it's not about your time. This is about the story. It's not about you, the storyteller. It's about the book that you're writing. So I always say this. I always say it's inefficient and who cares? Because, you know, if you want to write something that's beautiful, you can't worry about efficiency. But how was the editing process for you? Because I know that I reached out to you when we first discussed you coming onto the show. And I said, will you share your query letter with us? The query letter that landed your agent? Because I know our listeners want to, to see that. And your response was really fun and surprising. So tell us about that. So my agent, earlier I was talking about how getting into writing, I started to write small things, small short stories, poems, little essays or nonfiction pieces, and they were online. And so one morning in March 2018, I woke up to an email. It was a Saturday morning, and the, the subject line was your writing. And I opened it up, and it said, Dear Melissa, I read this essay of yours. It's called um, Mixed Blessings, which is still online, which I very much enjoyed. And I fell down a rabbit hole looking up other pieces of your writing online. Do you have an agent and are you working on anything long form? And it was signed someone called Claire Alexander, who is an amazing legendary agent. But at the time I was like, who's Claire Alexander? (laughs) So I looked her up and I saw, and she is incredible. And so I wrote back right away saying, no, I don't have an agent. And yes, I am working on two things. And at that point I had two ideas. And I had to stay. Wait, were you actually working on something or did you just say that so she wouldn't leave? (laughs) No, I actually was working on something. Ah, man, I totally (laughs) hope that you'd pulled off a sneaky because I know an author who did this. I'm not going to say her name, but she's a best selling author. And when her agent, now her agent reached out to her, she was like, Yes, I have a novel. She did not have a novel. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. (laughs) Then she wrote one. I had had 2,000 words. So if if that counts, but I had an idea. So uh, I had these two ideas and actually somebody, Thinking of actionable advice, somebody had told me this great thing. If you're working on a big book project, you need to have a sentence. Distill it down into one sentence. And actually, it's better to put it into a question form. So I'll do it as a sentence right now because that's what I can think of. It's This is a book about character X who wants Y but can't get it because of Z. And it's just down into one sentence. So I think for this book, it was... Peach Blossom Spring follows the life of Henry Dow and questions whether a life of abundance is possible after a childhood of displacement or something like that. And then maybe I had one other tiny sentence with a bit of context. But I sent her those two. The other idea is um, was something about New Mexico. But um, I sent her those two and she said, oh, I'm interested in the in the in both. Send me excerpts and send me a, a bit more. So I sent her my 2000 words on what became Peach Blossom Spring. And I did have a synopsis. So here's another thing I, for reasons I can explain later, I did have a a synopsis, 500 words. If it's a book, what does it look like? So I gave her those two things and then some short stories on the other project. She got back right away and said, why don't you come down and, and meet? So I met with her and we talked about this book, these characters, and she was brilliant. She said, 
I know you're not very far along, but you can maybe if you write a section and then send it to me, I can give you some input and then we can go through it. So the whole process, she was sort of there in the background, patient. And I think she believed in the story so much that there was another year or so, a year and a half before. Yeah, another year and a half before I had a, a full manuscript to give to her. But And she had seen some drafts in the meantime. She was brilliant about it. And then we brought that to, to sell that manuscript. It changed a lot again. But I think about the, the agent thing. Queries and letters are really important. The pages are great, but also visibility because you never know who is reading stuff. And I've, I've known some brilliant, brilliant writers who are so precious about their work. They don't want to put anything out there because they think it's going to ruin their chances. But really, it, it doesn't. It just means if you're out there, then somebody might find you. And then if you've got lots of little things, an agent can get a sense of, of what your writing is like and, and if, if it's a style they want to work with. So there's nothing to lose by publishing in lit Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's Delia Efron who says that your writing is your fingerprint. And so how is someone going to be interested in your fingerprint if you don't leave it around so people can see glimpses of it, right? And then fall in love with that. I, I have never had that happen to me from the agent side. Like I've never read a short story and reached out to someone and them and have them not been agented. I have reached out to people who, you know, turns out they were agented. It wasn't on their website and, you know, it was all fine. But I, I do know that as an agent, I'm always reading because we love reading, right? Like it's our passion. So I'm always reading these amazing stories with an eye towards, oh, I wonder if this person has a book in her. So this is really great advice, like not being precious. And I know it's hard for anyone listening because I do, I do understand that it's, it's a vulnerable thing to share your writing. But if your objective is to be published, it's always ambition before anxiety. It has to be because there's no other way because the only way over is, is through. So, okay, you, it took you a year and a half to send her a final, not final draft, but like a draft that you were like, okay, so this is a full novel. Tell us about the process after that. Did she get back to you with notes and then you guys went on sub? Did you do a few rounds or was it in good enough shape that you could go out with it immediately? Tell us about that process with timelines, please, because our listeners love timelines. So say May 2018, I signed with Claire. Then it turned out, I think this idea just had a lot of momentum because then it turned out that in June 2018, I was really fortunate and got a fellowship to spend a year basically just working on the novel. So I went to the University of East Anglia, which is not too far from here, and they have an incredible creative writing program. And this particular fellowship is just like, here's a desk here's uh, some money, here's a mentor, write. And I mean, you had more things you could do, but I just thought I'm going to write. Like I could have sat in on various modules. But so by June, July, 2019, I had worked with a mentor, sometimes worked with Claire. And it was, yeah, end of July, 2019. So, so that's what, 15 months. I sent her a really bad version of what would be this story, but it looked like the story. It actually resembled what the book became. She got back to me with notes pretty quickly. And we, we met and had an amazing lunch um, (laughs) because that was really good. But we talked a lot and most of her content or most of her notes were about characters and plot. It wasn't so much about the writing. So then I worked on it for another three months from those notes and January, 2020, we went back and forth a few quick flurries, like she'd read it. She had her uh, assistant read it. 
and we fixed a few things and it went out in sub February 2020. It was preempted after two weeks and that was amazing. Yay! And then it was March 2020, and the world as we knew it ended. But and COVID hit. Yes. Yay! So, so it took about a month after that. After the the March, we sort of signed in March, and it was early April when I met my editors. We met online. I had a UK editor and a US editor, and they were incredible. And over the first year of the pandemic yeah <laughs> it was a year of, of just constant editing and at that point pretty much from say June 2018 all the way up until I guess it had been last April 2021 this was mainly the only thing I was working on I was in a position with the fellowship and then with COVID that I could just focus on this what, what the lockdown the manuscript was in an okay it was in a pretty good shape when we submitted it to the publishers I knew that it wasn't done. Like I felt there was room. I think Claire was sick of looking at it. Um, <laughs> she's like, just, just sell the thing. So I wasn't. She wouldn't I, have submitted it if it weren't ready. I yeah, no, that. she would. I mean, she's she's she a wouldn't pro. have done that. No, I, 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 authors always think that about agents. They're like, they're, they're sick of reading this. I a hundred percent promise you, they're we're not. We're excited to get other people to see it. Because for the longest time, it's like, we know about this treasure that's out there and no one else knows about this treasure. And finally, when we go out on sub, we get to share the treasure with the world. It's amazing. Yeah. Ah, so that's a great way. Yeah. That makes me feel a little better that she maybe, maybe she wasn't (laughs) sick of it. But what you said about getting other eyes on it, I think was really, really great because they brought my two editors, Kate and Helen, just brought the new view, new depth. And to the extent that the story has really rounded characters and a tighter plot, that's really down to them. And I think what was really great is that they both had worked in, I think, sort of crime and thriller and pacey, pacey stuff. And having that eye on what was probably a little bit more, a little bit more meandering. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it was ever literary fiction, but that was kind of just exactly what I needed. I don't know that I would have said, oh, get me a crime editor. Actually, That's that was interesting. Perfect. Yeah. Having yeah. an editor who's, who's used to working on different genres so they can infuse new life into a manuscript. I love that. So what about the origins prologue, which I am, by the way, totally calling a prologue, even though you do not have the word prologue there written on the book. Was it always there? Or was it added later? Because I love it. Like I love yeah. listeners. I loved a prologue. <laughs> I know. Well, I very consciously did not call it a prologue because yeah, you were sneaky. You were sneaky. I, get it, I know I get it, it can be controversial. So the origins bit that actually was always there was always going to be the beginning and was really the beginning. One of the beginnings of writing the book. So I say that it started with a short story. And the short story, the original short story did start with a section very much like that. And it came from a writing exercise that I gave. I was leading a writing group. And I, whenever I lead a writing group, I like to do the exercise as well. And it's, it's inspired by a poem called Where I'm From by someone called George Ella Lyon. And this was doing the rounds maybe, let's say 2011, 2012, when the blogs were a much bigger thing. And a lot of people were writing these Where I'm From poems. And the idea, without without any spoilers, is that instead of saying, I'm from Los Alamos, New Mexico, you make it more metaphorical. So I might say, I'm from Aspen Leaves, and 
like cottonwood crunch or something like that. The crunch of cottonwood leaves. That's not too poetic. But um, <laughs> so I gave an example to the participants of the writing group. And they, so they started to write. And I thought I would be talking about in first person. And I thought I would be continuing this idea about someone from New Mexico. But what I wrote down instead is he, and it was he is from walking and walking and walking. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I, I didn't expect that. And then I just followed and I continued writing as, as they did. And then I just somehow really liked it. And I realized on some level, I thought, I think I might be talking about my dad, but I'm not sure. So the form that it is in the book is not very different from the form that I wrote that day when I was, was teaching the poem. It got a little bit changed because the original origins prologue kind of ended in a different place. And one of the very last things we changed in the overall editing of the book was recognizing that the story had changed, that the, the novel had changed the shape of it. So we had to go back and recast that origins bit. But it was more, most of the second part of it, the very, very beginning has always been the very beginning. And I wanted to call it origins, not only because it was the origins of the story for me, so it was sort of my own personal kind of Easter egg, but also the idea of where you come from and an origin is, is a starting point. And I think this question, where are you from, can be quite contentious, especially in the past few years. And it has a, you know, it can have a real aggressive connotation. But I think it's also, I'd like to reclaim it. <laughs> In the, in the spirit of curiosity, because I think sometimes people say, well, oh, where are you from? And it's a genuinely curious question, and they're not trying to be aggressive. I just want to find that, offer that form of the question as well. I love that so much. That's such a beautiful thing, the beautiful oh. sentiment for life, for all of life. What's something about, your book has come out, you're now a published author. What's something about that experience that has surprised you? It could be good, bad, both. It could be anything. Is there anything scary? Is there a biggest hope or desire that you hold that you'd like a reader to feel when they pick up your book for the first time? Mm, big question. Going off that, that last part, is there something that I'd like a reader to feel or when, you know, the first time they pick up the book? Sometimes I know I've, I've found books often by accident in a bookstore you just pick it up and you just you kind of know maybe you read the first page or you look at the back and you just know oh, this book is for me now and maybe you've never heard of it or maybe it was on your radar a few months ago and then you forgot about it and, and now you see it and then sometimes those turn out to be really important books so it would be really amazing if if it finds some readers that way that, you know, they weren't expecting it and somehow it just, they just know. But I think the other thing is if the book gets chosen for book groups, because I've had a handful of, of people say, you know, either, either friends that I know or just people writing saying, oh, we read this for our book group. And I think that's really exciting too, because when you read a book in a book group, you can kind of think about, well, what's so-and-so going to think of this question? Or you know it with an, you read it, in anticipation of having a conversation about it. And I think that's really exciting. So it's it's almost a, a, an opposite desire from the, you know, the person who finds the book didn't know it was going to mean a lot to them. And it does. It's it's the person who reads the book knowing that there's going to be a conversation and maybe hope, hopefully it would ignite some interesting conversations among book group members. Like maybe they'll learn something about each other that they didn't know because they read the book and 
notice different things. I don't know. I love that so much. Books that start conversations. If you had to get a job in publishing, not as an author, of course, because you already have that job, but like you have to get a job in publishing as something other than the author. What would it be? It could be anything in publishing. I think it would be fun. Well, two. I think it'd be fun to, can I choose two? Well, I'm going to. I mean, I guess, right? Like, if, this is what authors do. Authors can never pick one thing. I'm always like, could you recommend me a book? And they're like, here's seven. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I can. <laughs> I think it'd be fun to, to be an editor like like my editors try that because it must be it must be so exciting to see a book kind of become itself. If you are a really good editor, maybe you, you help the writer realize the book even more clearly than then they know it's there. And having taught, or we know we were talking about teaching, it's different from if I teach somebody Newton's second law or whatever, and then they go away, they can solve Newton's second law problems in physics. So that's exciting, but because they can do something they couldn't do before, but it's not creating something that wasn't there before. But if you're editing and somebody trusts you with their book, then you've got this imaginative thing that is growing and it's going to be something that maybe neither of you realized what it could be. Um, and you just get to work and, and, and shape it. And, and I think that could be really exciting. So it's so it, true. It's yeah. so true. Yeah. I think one thing that not everyone understands in the world, but that every storyteller understands on a visceral level is that when you're working with someone on your book, it could be your agent, it could be your editor, it could be a beta reader. It doesn't matter. Let's say there's like the writer and this other person, right? This collaborator. There's always three people in the room. Even when there's only two human beings, the third person, the third living thing is the book. Like mm-hmm. the book takes a life of its own. Like that sentence that you mentioned, you know, he is from walking and walking. How that you fo- you mentioned, like, I don't know if you noticed this. You said, I followed that sentence. Like you followed something that, of course, it came from your brain. Of course, it's your creation, but it's a living thing. Stories are living things and respecting that and Honoring that is a huge, huge part of what makes writing and editing and agenting so much fun. Because what we do is, let's face it, we have the world's, we work in the world's best, best craft, right? Like it's, it's stories. We're so lucky. Yeah. I remember thinking at one point, realizing at one point, and it was a little bit of a scary moment, but also kind of a release that like, gosh, this story is bigger than me. Like I knew I was in over my head and I was, it was out of my control and that maybe was the biggest leap from the, the, the short stories or poetry or your small essays. I just, you could feel like you could, not only could you hold that in your hand and, and do a draft in a day and then look at it, it, I just felt like I was in control. And then this one wasn't really that much in control. Like, you know, you try to control a scene by scene, but how it all just ended up going and what the character, it got more interesting when I wasn't in control. <laughs> I love that. You just gave me the best insight. I feel like all writers are to a degree control freaks because we're trying to create an entire world on a page, right? That we get to decide what people say and what people look like and who's going to do what. But at the same time, it's only when we let go of the control to a degree that the story can can find its own legs. And I, I just think that's really interesting. And okay, last question. Can you please recommend us a book? It can be a title you're excited to read or one that you've read recently and adored or an all-time favorite or anything else you'd like. Yes, a book that I just read, just finished last week and loved is called When We Were Birds. It's also a debut by Ayana 
Lloyd Banwell. So she's a Trinidadian author. And we were on a panel together, so I read her book. This book is about her setup, which is great. She's She's got a character who is a, a Rasta, a Rastafarian, and they're not supposed to touch the dead. And yet he has a job as a grave digger. So he's already... <laughs> And um, he's just trying to understand. That's one of her characters. But it's it's about family and heritage. And in the sense that what if your heritage is so huge, you can't get away from it? And I'm kind of broadly speaking in my book, it's what if you don't have a sense of heritage? How do you go forward? And my book. Oh, just, it's the other side of the coin. It's the other I side of the coin. I love that. And they're, and they're so like my book sprawls over all these continents and years and hers is in one fictional city in Trinidad and basically two scenes, a graveyard and a house. But there's so much that the books have to say to each other and her prose is incredible. So Ayana Lloyd Banwell, When We Were Birds. Highly I love that. I love that. Any last message that you'd like to convey to our listeners? They are, for the most part, there are some exceptions, aspiring authors. They're storytellers who are looking to get published for the very first time. They're looking to be in your shoes, to be debut novelists. Not necessarily novelists, I should say. I think you've got to write something that you care about, really. Like, you have to fiercely care about it more than more than anyone else does, because you've got to live with the thing. But also, it's got to be something that you'd be unhappy not doing it. Like, you'd rather do a bad job than not do it at all. And then... Once you've done a bad job, you can make it better because it is that iterative thing. But you really have to mean it. That's what I think. I mean, I have to write things that matter a lot to me because if they don't, then why bother? You have to be unhappy not doing it. You're giving us so many nuggets of wisdom. (laughs) I love it. Okay. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Oh, thank you, Cece. I loved it. Hello, 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 podcast listeners. As you know, at the Shit No One Tells You About Writing, we always say it only takes one yes. Writers work with Robin at Readerly Book Coaching to get that one yes. Robin may be the book coach for you if you're writing historical fiction, historical mysteries, or women's fiction. Maybe you've given your draft to critique partners, you've tried editing yourself, but you know something still isn't working. She will give you detailed professional feedback so you can draft your way or revise your way to yes. Go to readerly.net slash one yes to find out more or enter your name into a draw for a laser coaching session. That's readerly.net slash one yes. She's an author, accelerator, certified book coach, and experienced research reviewer who can't wait to help you with your project. Go to readerly.net slash one yes. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Great news. The beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup tab, 
and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.